Smartphones are incredible pieces of technology. They allow users the ability to track stars, text people around the world, purchase items at the ease of click, map their next destination, and so much more. Their individual capabilities are truly remarkable. It's crazy, and all of that is powered by the battery. And really what limits it, the engineer's imagination, they know how much they can get out of that in terms of the energy. And so imagine now if you could get 50% more energy out of your phone and do 50% more tasks that we hadn't even thought of yet. That's Rick Constantino. And while what he is saying may sound too good to be true, it's not. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Rick dives into how Group 14 is reversing that trend by working to replace the traditional graphite anode with a silicon casing material. Plus, Rick touches on why silicon is the future of the battery industry, the impact it will have on devices that use lithium-ion batteries, and how Group 14 is thriving despite some early-stage struggles. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome, everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the founder and CTO of Group 14 Technologies, Rick Constantino. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. Right out the gate. Tell us what Group 14 does. Group 14 is helping to develop better batteries, specifically lithium ion batteries, so that your batteries can weigh less or actually store more energy. So we did a little homework on you and it says you were, you had spent 20 years of your life as a biopharmaceutical expert, and then you later on pivoted. You mentioned in some articles and interviews that we've read with you that some of the things you learned there are directly applicable to what you're currently doing at Group 14. I was hoping you could kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, a little bit about what you used to do and then kind of tell us how that does apply to engineering better batteries. Happy to talk about that. Yes, as you mentioned, I started my career in the pharmaceutical industry and I got my PhD at MIT, and I started working uh, for a company called Genentech, which was one of the big founding companies in, in the biotech space, one of the oldest companies around, uh, the earliest to actually start cloning proteins for therapeutic use. And, you know, I'd like to say I had this sort of grand career plan to make this transition from pharmaceuticals into energy storage, but the, the truth is it was more of sort of a serendipitous path for me. You know, uh, with, the, uh, with the big uh, recession in 2008, I ended up consulting for a while, and that's how I ended up going to Group 14, actually Energy 2 was the company at the time. And Rick Luby, who was the CEO of, of Energy 2, found me uh, because I had co-edited a book on freeze-drying of pharmaceuticals. And of course, freeze-drying is a method to remove you know, the solvent, remove water, so that you can have a dry formulation uh, of peptide and protein drugs so that they would last longer, they'd be more stable. And this is a very uh, important technology, for example, in stabilizing vaccines. And obviously, vaccines is a pretty, pretty hot topic these days. Yeah. So as it turned out in that case, the uh, technology for freeze drying was being used to help make uh, engineer a carbon material for energy storage. And that's how I ended up consulting for Energy 2 and then later on was brought on as VP. And then we spun out uh, Group 14 uh, as a company working on lithium-ion batteries. So I find those same engineering principles that uh, were useful for me in the pharmaceutical world were also you know, very useful in terms of designing this material for, for energy storage purpose. Now, talk to us a little bit about what Group 14 is attempting to accomplish, because on the outside, hearing that you want to go after a, you know, a battery that weighs less or carries more charge, we've had other 
CTOs, business leaders that are working in fields like this kind of give their point of view. I was hoping you could share how you're approaching this problem. Uh, you know, how are you guys uniquely approaching the idea of how do I even make a battery carry more in electricity or a way less? Why does that even matter? I was hoping you could share some of that information. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to share that. You know, when you think about a lithium ion battery, you know, there's a lot of components in there. And, you know, two of the key components are, of course, are your anode and your cathode, the two different poles of the battery. And there, you know, over the decades, there's been lots of work optimizing all those various uh, parts of the battery. You know, a lot of work, for example, has been done on the cathode side. Lots of, lots of great advances uh, in materials and technology, you know, on the cathode side. On the anode side, you know, we've been using the same basic approach, which is a material called graphite, which is a great material. And, you know, for decades. And so we uh, were thinking about how could we improve that sort of that last frontier of the battery improvement, you know, on, on the anode side. And so that brought us to thinking, of course, about carbon. And of course, graphite is, is carbon. So it's, it's a very specific and very, very interesting form of carbon called an allotrope. And so we were making a different form of carbon. We were making what's called a hard carbon. It's, it's sort of a different, uh, it's, it's still the same chemical structure, but it's a, it's a different sort of three-dimensional structure. And we were using that to make ultracapacitor materials when we started out at Energy 2. And uh, we, so our big sort of moment where we said, okay, how can we apply this technology to improve, you know, today's graphite and try to make something better? And that's where silicon comes in. And then silicon is, uh, is, an, is uh, it's similar in some ways to carbon in that it has, it's on the same column in the periodic table, if you guys remember from the year old chemistry classes. And uh, it happens to be that uh, 14th column over. Uh, so it's a group, group 14 is the name of, of that, uh, that column on the periodic table. So we ended up naming our company group 14 to reflect that we were trying to combine carbon with silicon. So the key is to how do you get silicon to work? Because silicon is a, a tremendous material in terms of the amount of energy it can store. It's 10 times the amount of energy that, that, graphite, that graphite or any carbon could store. But the problem with silicon is when you, when you put it in the battery and cycle it, you, know, you, you need to insert lithium inside and outside of the material, that silicon expands about four times. And that makes it really difficult for the material to rebound and expand every time and retain its integrity in the same capacity to absorb the same energy every time. So silicon is fantastically high energy density, but it tends to not last very long when you cycle it. So that's not useful in a battery. You want your battery to last hundreds of thousands of cycles just like graphite. So our approach was to protect that silicon, make the best possible form of the silicon and, and protect it inside a, a porous carbon matrix. So it's a hybrid material, part carbon, part silicon. They're both in that, that group 14 column. And so our material has the, has the high capacity of silicon, but has the stability advantages of, of, a, of a carbon material. Now talk to me a little about why this matters, uh, because the benefits sound great, but Part of this is battery technology. We're, we're increasingly dependent on batteries. That's, no one can dispute that. But a lot of people don't realize is how environmentally detrimental it is to actually extract the materials necessary for a battery. The mining, the strip mining, whether it's looking for the metals. I'm not as familiar with what it takes to get graphite out of the ground, but I was hoping you could maybe share a little bit about like, what does it take to get graphite out of the ground? What does it mean if that energy source, like you mentioned before, has a higher storage? What does that mean for the other, like, for example, lithium? We know that lithium, nickel, all the metals used to manufacture batteries typically 
I mean, it's a dirty business. Most people don't want to acknowledge this, but like I've seen some of the footage of what it looks like post these when these mines are operating. I mean, you're talking about it looks like scorched earth to get these things out. Um, I was hoping you could share a little about like what do you think the supply chain impacts will be if you guys you know successfully figure this out and bring it to mass adoption. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and that environmental aspect is a critical part of our of our business and kind of the whole ecosystem of energy storage, and it's it's a really hot topic. Uh, at our meetings, uh, you know, at, at meetings, at scientific meetings, and even internally, we talk a lot about that. It's kind of part of our culture is how do we have a battery supply chain from sort of start to finish that's as sort of environmentally friendly and as friendly to this planet as possible. And you're right, the, the, the extraction of some of those raw materials, there's definitely, that's a huge impact there. And so, you know, so you have to think about how do you extract those materials and process those materials in as, you know, sort of friendly, environmentally friendly way as possible, an ethical way as possible. How do you link your supply chain from, from the raw materials, you know, being, being, being unearthed to how they have to, have to be refined if necessary, to how they end up in a battery. So that whole chain needs to be as connected as possible and as efficient as possible. And then another key aspect of this is the battery itself and how, you know, how, how long can it last? So if you have very long lasting batteries, very high energy density batteries, you don't have to make as many of them. You don't have to make them as frequent. And that last step, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of focus on this last step is how do you extract and recycle those materials from the battery as much as possible so that you don't have to go back to the earth <laughs> to, to make the next battery. And, and there's a lot of activity along that entire chain. And, you know, I think no one company can sort of do it all, um, but we're all kind of we're all kind of in this together, and I think there's a lot of interesting synergy along that entire chain. So you know we want to source our materials uh, from as sort of a friendly way as possible. We want, we, for example, our process we want to be ideally to be a completely enclosed system. Our vision is at large scale, all of the energy that our process needs, we're going to actually generate it within our own process and recycle it as much as we can, and then as much as we can, we want our material as possible at least you know, along with the other materials to be able to be recycled as much as possible. So again, that's that there's that whole chain. And I think, you know, each, each company in that chain is trying to do its part and we're all kind of linked together in the effort. I'm curious in your testing so far, how have things gone? How close are we until this, uh, your, you know, this material, how is it, how is it performed? And then how close are we, or how close is group 14 to having this material more widely adopted across all the battery manufacturers? I'm assuming like that's the business model, which is if you have this technology, you want Duracells, the energizers, all the companies that make these, make batteries to adopt this. And then we'll dive into even like the bigger scale batteries, like automotive batteries that are now, we already know EVs are even more popular, right? It's not just Tesla. All the major auto manufacturers are introducing electronic vehicles, electric vehicles. So they're going to need huge batteries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is an industry that's extremely dynamic and there's a lot of interesting uh, technologies and, and uh, you know, companies out there. You know, some of the technologies are going to take a while to be adopted. So the particular approach that we've taken is to how do we get as adopted as fast as possible? So our, our material is a, a drop-in. For, for graphite in the anode. So we are, our, our material is a black powder. It looks just like graphite. It processes the same way as graphite. Um, its performance is quite different than graphite. But in terms of how our materials can use it, uh, materials can be used by our customers, they can use their same equipment that they use to make their anodes today. They can use their same uh, manufacturing lines that they're using to make the batteries today. So all of that means an extremely rapid process from you know, we, we present the material to a customer, they, they test it, they like it, and now they can actually implement it and make batteries. 
So our philosophy has always been to try to be as fleet of foot as possible. You know, our material is, is available today in some in limited quantities, uh, but we are actually at this very moment, we're uh, going through a commercial launch of our material here in Woodinville, Washington. And we're, we're about to, uh, you know, we're sort of going through the, the kind of the final commissioning phases of that plant. So that, that material will be available at pretty large quantities, actually about a hundred and ton per year, a quantity uh, in, in that particular plant. And, and we're, we're, uh, we'll be available pretty soon uh, for, that, for that material. And then, of course, that sort of quantities will be interesting for, for some of these initial markets, um, but they won't be able to feed those automotive markets, those really, really large markets that you're talking about. That's going to take another one or two orders of magnitude, more production capability. And our vision is to, with this commercial launch plant, which will be able to you know, get into some of the smaller kind of batteries and devices for customers, that'll be the blueprint for then building a larger plant, you know, using the same, same exact sort of platform technology for the manufacturing. How about for like cell phone batteries? Is, is this type of material that goes into a cell phone battery as well? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, lithium-ion batteries, I mean, they're, they're pretty much ubiquitous these days. Your cell phone, your computer, of course, that sort of holy grail market is the automotive. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot, and of course, you know, wearables, uh, you know, the, the, my earpods right now, you know, all, all these various things, you know, are really, all, they're all powered, a lot of them by, by lithium-ion batteries. Gotcha. So the reason why I asked that is because I didn't know, you know, you had mentioned before that there's like size requirements. You know, you had talked about in the, at a chemical level, uh, separating the silicon so that, because you said it, it expands in orders of magnitude greater. It has a, uh, it carries more power, but it has shorter cycling times. But you were working on different mixing with different graphites to make sure it works better. So I like to phrase it in terms of a cell phone because I think we all, or many of our listeners, I'll say all, uh, have a smartphone. <laughs> and we all know that they kind of only last for a day. A day of heavy usage, the power is going to be depleted. I mean, if you can make it through a day, I think you're pretty good. Uh, we've been all been to conferences. Remember back in the day when we used to go to conferences, every conference has a charging bank because they know that power <laughs> to these devices is mission critical. And so when we think about that, we also know that cell phone, like to my knowledge, and not just speak from anecdotal experience in about a year or two, the ability to hold a charge is diminished a lot in our cell phones. So talk to me about what this means for like a cell phone. Uh, take me through this because, you know, we use numbers all the time that say it's going to carry for, you know, more energy, more whatever. So give me, I like to phrase this in terms of like days. If my normal cell phone lasts me a day, what does a cell phone with a battery powered by group 14 materials, what's that going to last? Uh, let's say, let's say a day and a half. Gotcha. So it's got about 50% potentially more capacity to deliver the same energy. On that order of magnitude. Yeah, I mean, getting you double would be would be a pretty pretty tall feat, but I think something about a day and a half, uh, you know, in that in that order is is definitely very feasible, and that's the kind of that's the kind of results our customers are getting. And and as we're talking, I'm noticing my computer's at sixty six percent, so I just reduced uh, reduced my brightness just just in case. <laughs> yeah, so if I get a fifty percent more usage, how about the times I have to cycle it? Because now I'm cycling it fifty percent less as well, right? I'm only charging it. What, you know, instead of every day, I'm every day and a half. So how about how many times can it charge? Cause it does it still have like 365 days of cycling or 365 cycles or how many cycles will it have? Yeah. So it would have the same, it would have the same cycles. It, it depends on the particular customer requirements, but for example, the cell phone kind of requirement, they won't let you get away with less cycles. You have to match the cycle of the current product and just store more energy. So it means either, you know, like you say, you don't have to charge as often. You can still have the phone, the battery last as many, as many days. 
or as many charges as possible. But another way to think about it is now your now your phone can do 50% more things. And nothing I think humbled me more than a meeting with a consumer electronics customer that I can't name who said, you know, your your material has so much energy density that we can do more things with our consumer electronics devices we ha- that we hadn't even imagined yet. So, you know, if you think about today in your hand, in your phone, you're carrying this remarkable device. It's not just a phone. It's a phone. It's a computer. It's a GPS. It's a gyroscope. It's a flashlight. It's a TikTok machine. It's a video. <laughs> yeah, it's a dictation machine, right? Videos and songs. It's a film editor, right? Video editor. It's crazy. And all of that is powered by the battery. And all of that, and, and really what limits it, the engineer's imagination, they know how much how much they can get out of that in terms of the energy. And so imagine now if you could get 50% more energy out of your phone and do 50% more, more tasks that we hadn't even thought of yet. That's awesome. And I like, I want to hear about this perspective because you just brought up a great point. I think a lot of our listeners might not have thought about, which is the manufacturers themselves that depend on the battery, they have requirements. And like you mentioned before that they had a requirement that it had to have the same cycle life. What are some of the other requirements you hear from different industries that maybe you were surprised by like, oh, I didn't even think about that in terms of being able to willing to accept your material as a, as a, as a replacement for the current way lithium ion is done. Uh, you know, the other kind of requirements and aspects, again, all this depends on what the application is, but for example, the temperature requirements and how hot or cold that device has to work. So you might imagine an automotive battery would have to have sort of a more, sort of more swings than a consumer electronics device that you're going to keep in your home. If it's, let's say a, a, a kitchen appliance or something. So there's temperature requirements and there's also the power requirements. So how fast you want to charge or discharge. Again, and sort of, if you think about like a power tool, you want to have very, very fast discharge. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even matter how, how sort of how long you're drilling, just that when you drill, it has to have a certain energy delivered. So, you know, certain batteries and certain technology have certain requirements and, and there's really not a one size fits all to that. So given that, you know, as you were developing these materials, as you were developing these batteries, you probably were introduced new requirements that uh, I don't know if you had thought of yet, right? And so talk to me about the development process of, you know, bringing this material to market. I'm sure people would introduce new, like we said, just new standards that you just hadn't thought about. And you had to go back to the lab and try to figure out like the temperature requirement, like figuring out like, well, how do we get the temperature to not rise or not fall too much? Right. No, great, great question. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a, an interesting kind of analogy I was just thinking of as you're asking the question that goes back to my pharmaceutical days. And, you know, we're, we're not trying to make the world's best battery. We're trying to make the world's best battery material. Right. And let those companies that already know how to make the best batteries, just feed them our material and say, here's now a new material. You can rethink what's possible with your batteries. And we had that same kind of philosophy back in my days when I was working on drug delivery. We had a technology for delivering the drugs. That was a fantastic technology, but we, we knew that getting into the business of discovering drugs, there was a lot of other companies that knew how to do that already. So we, they came to us with a new way of, of making their drug better and delivering it. So we have the technology that can help deliver energy. And so we work with all the major battery companies and again, give them our material and say, you know, here's a material. It has extremely high capacity. It has extremely good cycle stability. And those other aspects we were talking about, the power, the temperature requirements, you know, some of that is going to be limited by the material, but a lot, most of that is limited by the battery design itself and the battery management system. And so, you know, there, there's so much to that, that companies already know how to do really well that, you know, we're just trying to make the very best material and then feed it into those, into those applications. Gotcha. 
I want to take us back a little bit because you talk about the earlier stages of Group 14. I think people, our audience definitely enjoys hearing about the process of discovery. So I guess, where was the company when you got involved? Had you got, had the materials already been identified? Had like what stage were you guys in? Because you had, you had mentioned that one of the co-founders saw that you had written a thing about you know, how to remove the water. And so yep. I reached out to you today. You might be able to help us here. How far along was the company towards its discovery when you, when you joined? Yeah. So when, when I joined Energy2, uh, the company was, was quite small and there, weren't, there were very few scientists. Uh, and one of the scientists was, was actually a professor, Bill Scott from University of Washington. And, and uh, so we were, again, making carbons for ultracapacitor materials. So these were ultracapacitors are a very interesting and specific type of, of an energy storage device that can extremely rapidly charge and discharge and can do it extremely rapidly, but not hold a lot of energy. So it's really useful for capturing energy. For example, when you're braking in your car, that regenerative braking technology is actually an ultracapacitor helping recover that energy in that very small time, but it can't hold a lot of energy. So we were developing the carbons for ultracapacitors. And it was an interesting market for energy too, but it wasn't the, you know, a hugely lucrative market for us. And, and so in 2015, BSF purchased energy too. And at the time, we were starting to dabble on, on the research end in, in this, as I said, the sort of the silicon and carbon fusion for lithium ion. And so we said, okay, this technology is still in the incubation stage. We spun it out as group 14. So that's how we started group 14. And we tried so many approaches, hundreds of approaches. And my, my personal philosophy in life is kind of the Thomas Edison model. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, have a hundred ideas to have a good one kind of thing. So it may drive my, my workers and my family crazy that I have all these crazy ideas. And okay, that doesn't work. Just keep going. Cause I know one of these is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we tried a lot of different ways of combining the silicon and carbon. And we actually had one particular approach that, that was, uh, that got pretty far along, but still wasn't kind of hitting the mark, especially for cost and scalability. So we, what we decided to do is we decided to kind of put a halt on all of our research and what we decided to do was kind of just have basically meet every day and just talk about what is that, forget about what we've done so far. What does the ideal material look like? What do we really want to do? And then let's think about how to do it. And we spent, I think, about a month in those meeting rooms every day, just discussing and you know, talking about papers and other companies, what everybody was doing. And, and finally, over the course of that time, we had the aha moment. Well, okay, we know how to make carbon really well. So instead of trying to figure out the silicon piece, let's take the best carbon we could think of to try to make a, a, a template so that we can make the best silicon inside the carbon. So instead of thinking of silicon focus approach, we had a carbon focus approach. And this is very different from our competitor companies. And that was kind of the aha moment. And then we said, you know what? Okay, now we know how to make carbon. Now let's take that approach, make that best carbon, and then make the silicon inside the carbon. And out of that meetings, we, we decided, you know, to scrap all the old, uh, old projects and, and kind of restart it, which, which is a very kind of bold thing for a company to do. It's very hard to kill a project yeah. <laughs> in, in companies. So I, lo I love hearing that story because it sounds like, you know, you were looking at a problem, but you're looking at it from, for whatever reason, you're not seeing the other side or the other dimension that you could potentially be solving. You were heads down, everyone trying to solve this one thing. Unfortunately, it wasn't able to be solved. You had this moment where you said, hey, let's take a step back. Let's, let's put on the table what we know. And let's examine the problem, see what we can come up with. And it's when you came out of the box and said, let's go at it another route. I'm curious. So people are notoriously, I would say, anti-meeting because they feel like it gets them nowhere. Uh, how many meetings did you have to have before this discovery was made? I want to say we probably had about 20 meetings. 
you know, on the order of 10 or 20, it was, it was about a month and, and meeting pretty much, pretty much daily. So it was not, it was kind of a painful process <laughs> to go through. Yeah. Talk about how you were feeling at the point where you're like, oh man, head scratching. Like I cannot figure this out. Well, I think at first people were, were, uh, were like, you know, what, what the heck is this? We want to just get back in lab and do stuff. So I think at first there was a little bit of this friction, you know, but after I think the first week or so of doing it, then it, and no pun intended, gathered a lot of energy because people saw, wow, okay, this is, this is time for us to think back and start reading papers. And we started assigning people papers and presenting it. And what are the pros and cons of that approach? And, and what could we do better than that? And then, you know, what else could we do? So, you know, we, we, uh, we started getting a lot of interest and energy and momentum after a while. And what I think really helped, you know, coming from a complete, you know, coming from outside the battery world, coming from a pharmaceutical perspective, but as a chemical engineer, having the principles, you know, I would come in and I would have a crazy idea. And people are like, no, a battery just doesn't do that. That's not how battery works. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, for me, electrical engineering was, I think, my least favorite. Uh, I think it's the thing I barely passed for my my PhD. I'm not even sure how I got through it. I hated it to be honest. I did not like this aspect, but because so coming in, but I love the chemistry. I love nanoengineering materials. And so when I hear about, okay, what does an anode have to? Even if I don't kind of, you guys, you know, you guys teach me about the whole battery. I'm just going to focus on what is the anode material. What do you want it to do? What do we want it to look like? And focusing on just the one aspect of the whole battery, and again, my not having a preconceived notion of what could or could not be possible was really helpful, you know, for me to kind of you know lead lead that group and lead some of those discussions. So during this process, how was all of this financed? Uh, was it because you had mentioned before the other company had been acquired and spun out, and this was spun out of BASF? So was it through that the financing there, or was did you guys independently go get money? How did you how did you create enough runway to research this? Yeah, good question. And those early days are always tough. So when we launched the company, uh, we had a, a small investment from BSF in the form of a convertible note. Mm-hmm. And we also had a grant with the U.S. Department of Energy through their vehicle technologies office. And really that that those two fundings uh, were, were what really launched the company in those those early several years until we got to our our next, uh, you know, our, our first raise, our first Series A raise about about a year, a little over a year ago. So talk to me about the, did you, were you, what kind of pressure did, or did you feel a lot of pressure? Cause that's obviously a very limited runway. You're trying to, you know, change the way material engineering or chemical engineering, like, you know, you're, you're like you talked about group 14, you're, you're changing the way chemical compounds are known to, to function. Right. So, you know, there's part of you that probably is thinking, well, is this even possible? And then you have a finite runway. Like if you don't bring back a result that then this is going to project will run out, either run out of money, right? Because no one wants to back a project where you don't have an answer, right? So Yes, yes. And, you know, I've, I, I've been around the block a, a few times here uh, with this kind of a question. And, you know, again, back to my pharmaceutical days, um, you know, the last company I was with, I sort of joke that I've, I've moved progressively from large companies to to small. So I started at Genentech, which was, you know, thousands of employees, one of the, you know, one of the second, I think it's the second oldest or third oldest biotech company. So even when I joined, it was quite established. Then moving to a company that was maybe hundred employees, then moving, you know, down to 10. So the, maybe my next giggle will just be me in the garage and nobody else. I'm not sure. But that, that's sort of that funding question. So when I was in energy, you know, when I, when I was at my last pharmaceutical position, of course, uh, we ran, we basically ran out of funding. Uh, with the, with the recession in 2008, and because we had a business model where we were reliant on those partners to fund their projects, right, we were funded by other pharmaceutical companies, and and it was within the span of just a few months. I think every single of my scientific counterparts gave me a painful call and said, "Look, I'm really sorry, but we have to cancel our program. Nothing personal. In fact, I have to lay off my entire division." Kind of kind of thing. So that was just this horrible experience. 
you know, where, where we just ran out, we ran out of funding, even though we were well-funded up to that point, it, it dried up real fast. Yeah. You know, in the energy two days, uh, you know, we, we eventually did make a, you know, relatively successful exit with the BSF acquisition, but it was a tough road. There were, there were multiple occasions where the, the, the runway was getting really short and we had some really creative, uh, we had a really creative CFO and some really creative things that we did to kind of just constantly keep things going. And of course you never, you know, you never want to sort of bother your, your employees with, uh, with the runway question. Um, but you know there were there were so many cases when we were so close. Um, so you know when we st- you know we spun out uh, you know Group 14, we were in those early days extremely careful about the growth of the company. In fact, we were just five employees for for quite a long time. So you know you you have to be really careful with that run. We have to really really judicious about it. And it's 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 you know sort of this philosophical question: if you if you you know you know see a little chasm coming up and you're, and you're running, do you do you put the brakes on to make sure you don't fall over, or do you kind of run as fast as you can? Uh, you know, to make sure you can leap over and make that, you know, make the clear the chasm. Um, and so, you know, and I feel right now that we're we're in a fantastic position where I feel like we should just keep running and running uh, with it. But until you really know that, you know, you're you're you can you can do it. You got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. And so it just takes takes that that experience and and, and perspective. Yeah. So what was it like? I guess so. You you know you talked about bringing the team together. You guys had 20 days or more of meetings trying to figure out how to solve this problem. You guys go after the carbon side of things. You know, what I'm curious about is what about that first experiment where you're like, the lights went on, like we are on our path. Talk about what that was like. Oh my God. It was, it was amazing. So, you know, again, we had a really good material to that point. Right. But however, when we tried this new approach, it was like a huge step change in the performance. So it wasn't incremental. It was like you entered a new space. It was like double the cycle <laughs> life of the other material, like for the first experiment. And, and we hadn't even optimized it yet. And what was, I think, even more of the uh, amazement was not just the performance, but the, the simplicity of the approach, because our previous approach was extremely complicated. You know, our previous, our previous lead approach, not to get too technical, but it was to take a alloy material of, 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 uh, of aluminum and silicon and, and etch away the non-silicon part which was not a trivial process and involved an acid, you know, very sort of nasty conditions, harvesting that what we called a uh, sort of this, this feathered, or we called a webbed approach, because it looked kind of like a spider web. Then we took that material and then had to mix it with some precursors and then carbonize to create a carbon-coated silicon. So it was kind of this, it was, it was a lot of steps, a lot of sort of harsh conditions. But this new approach, again, we knew how to make the kind of carbon we wanted, and we could, you know, do that pretty easily because we kind of knew that. And then it was just making the silicon inside. So compared to how hard the other approach was, this new approach was way faster to get the material, way easier. And we thought, wait, you know, going to be a lot faster and, and more efficient to produce as well as have that better performance. So it was, it was, it was an amazing moment getting those early, early results in. Awesome. And then when you finally figured, you know, like you talked about those aha moments, doubling the, uh, the cycling Talk to me, when did you, when did you guys, I guess, have a material where you were saying, hey, we, we can produce this at, at scale? Because you kind of talked about like the first iteration, it was extremely difficult to produce. You mentioned that you used the words nasty, right? <laughs> nasty conditions. Yes, yes. Was there like a goal or a metric that you guys had internally? Like, hey, we needed to, for example, like maybe it was a cost number where you guys said, hey, we have to figure out a way to make this at X number of dollars an ounce. Where then you're like, okay, at this price point, people will buy this. Talk to me about how, how did it get to the point where you could say with confidence, go to a battery company and say, hey, we have a new material for you. 
Yeah. So that, that's a great question. So the, um, so that, you know, so again, because we're producing both the carbon and the silicon ourselves. And we, so the first piece, we already knew how to do it. Yeah. And in fact, I actually, one of the things I did at energy too, is I reinvented how we even made the carbon. We used to make the carbon again, in a multi-step kind of complicated process. I reinvented that as a, as a single, you know, it's ironic because they came in, they hired me to help fix the freeze drying step, which was one of like 11 steps. And I helped them do that. But what I ultimately helped them do is throw all that away and figure out how to do it in one step with a completely different process that had nothing to do with. You replaced your knowledge. You replaced yourself. And nothing to do with freeze drying. So thank goodness they were freeze drying at the time and using the wrong method. Otherwise I never would be talking to you. Um, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'd be, you know, working on who Lord knows what. But anyway, so we knew how to do the carbon piece. We'd already scaled that, and, and this new technology was even easier to scale. And then, of course, there's that, that's, that again, that second step, making the silicon, which we also is also pretty pretty you know simple in the sense that it's a single reaction, a single step. Um, there's obviously some some science to it, but you know the second step, we also had a vision. This looks very scalable, and we, we you know we were able to do that in the lab very very easily. And you know, so it was a matter of just you know producing the material for, for customer sample. So that's, you know, that's one of the hardest things in this business. There's lots of amazing ideas, but you have to get the material to the customer to test. And for the customer to make a battery, you know, it takes maybe, you know, at least something like maybe a hundred grams, even a kilogram to really, and maybe multiple kilograms to make relevant batteries, the kind of batteries that you're going to, you know, would be the same size that would fit in your phone or even, you know, an automobile, even much larger. So we had to rapidly get to that kilogram scale. And that's, we were able to do that by just, you know, picking processes that we thought were very scalable. Yeah, because that's like one of the, for anyone out there that's trying to invent technologies that are going to enter an existing business's supply chain. What you just mentioned is something that a lot of people don't think about, which is when it comes to a supply chain, they actually don't want to introduce things they can't rely on. You know, you mentioned like you had to be able to produce with confidence at kilogram scale, right? Like, because if I'm a company, like, let's imagine I'm Duracell and you come and tell me you can only give me one kilogram a month. I'm like, well, what's the point of me even trying this? <laughs> like, it is no value to me. Exactly. And that, that was the key turning point. You know, I would say the first key turning point was the turning point where we had these meetings and, and kind of sort of redefine what, what we're going to do um, and how to do it. You know, second key moment was when we got our first kind of kilogram batch. And we had, you know, we had, um, again, I can't go into too much in the technical details, but we, sure. we had a pilot scale reactor at the time, about a kilo scale reactor. Um, and this was part of our Department of Energy project. And that reactor was designed to, you know, sort of operate a certain way that I won't go into. And it wasn't producing, you know, the material as we had expected, of course, right? So, you know, nothing ever turns out the way we always want the first time or even the hundredth time. So we, we and again, so we were trying to get this reactor work. We tried everything. And again, without going into the detail, um, there was a, basically a piece of this reactor that I didn't like that I thought was hampering us. Yeah. So I waited till an occasion when my my CEO was actually out of town and I, I had my engineer literally like take this piece out of the reactor. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> I don't know, a little dangerous telling this story, but I think you'll find it amusing. And my engineer was like, well, if I take it out, I'm not 100% sure I'll be able to put it back in. Is that okay? And I'm like, we both look at each other like, yeah, we're okay with that. <laughs> so he he pulled this piece out. And basically we, again, long story short, we reconfigured the reactor after that. And it was after that, like that, literally that evening, I pulled the material out of the reactor and I could just tell by looking at it, this looks right. And it's funny, you know, you get, when you start doing these kind of things and, you know, I'm kind of old school, I, I look at the material, I can feel it through the gloved, you know, fingers and I could sort of feel it feels right. It looks right. And I knew right away 
oh my goodness, this looks good. I actually texted the team a picture. I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, we, I think I got this. And, and so that led to us being able to produce kilogram quantities and let, you know, let, let to, led to a kind of a redesign of the reactor a little bit and led us to be able to sample the kilogram quantities. And that was the, that was the other key moment was being able to produce those kilogram samples uh, for our customers to make real batteries. And then they knew, wow, this we're onto something. And that led to our first funding round. Yeah. And then also, like you said, the ability to also forecast it, like forecast how much would it cost to make a certain size, right? Once you have the process down, you can actually forecast and give a, because every company that manufactured scale, they're going to want to know how much does it cost? How often can you get it to me? Like <laughs> all these things have to be true for them to introduce it into their own supply chain. Exactly. And we have a huge demand for the material right now because a lot of customers are getting into their larger format devices. And again, as I mentioned, we're, we're kind of on the, on the cusp of our, you know, of our commercial launch at that 120 ton per year scale. Uh, it's not quite, the plant's not quite open yet. So we're still, yeah. uh, you know, cranking out the smaller samples. And man, there's a, there's, a, there's a big backlog right now of that material. Listen, as a person who, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm any different from anyone else. Except that one thing, I'm super cheap. So the whole idea of buying batteries constantly just bothers me. Like Bluetooth headphones, like, you know, the small, the small ones like you have in your ear. Yep. Like I have a pair for running, but like, I actually don't like them because of course, if I go fly, then I can't really rely on them. So I like things to last a really long time. So I'm pretty darn pumped that this material is making its way to batteries. I love the idea that in the future, it won't, it sounds like in a not too distant future you know, for all of our devices to last 50% longer, that's pretty significant. And, or like the other way to look at it, if your environmental side is, you know, production can drop by 50%, but I don't think it will because mm -hmm. the demand for batteries is not, it's not shrinking. More and more people want electronic devices. Exactly. Well, Rick, it was awesome hearing your story. Uh, right now though, it is time to do the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Rick, this is where we ask you questions outside of work so that our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? I'm ready. Go for it. All right. When you first walked in the doors at MIT, what did you think you were going to be when you, <laughs> as you got older? <laughs> what did I think I was going to be? You know, I thought I would be heading up a pharmaceutical company, starting my own company. So you always had the dream of being in pharmaceuticals as well as a leadership position in one of these companies. Uh, at, at that point in my career, that was my plan. Of course, I've had that, that plan change many times, but at that particular point, that was the plan. That's awesome. And when you first got to school, did you learn anything interesting that you said to yourself, hey, this is definitely the path because you didn't really deviate. Yeah, you actually followed through on your plan. Yeah, you know, I, I learned, uh, I had two, two co-advisors who had very different philosophies of life. And one was sort of extremely detail-oriented. And the other was just this, you know, uh, sort of amazing insights and, and more, you know, sort of the more of the, we're going to try a lot of things until it works. And so I tried to sort of blend those two, those two approaches for, for my career. What about for your confidence? Where do you think your confidence comes from? Because you kind of mentioned throughout this show that you are very much an experimental guy. Like you're not afraid to, you know, you're willing to go. Uh, the most famous person I have read about that has failed a lot is like, I read about how James Dyson invented 3,127 prototypes that didn't work before he figured it out. And I was like, dang, I would have quit at one. I think I would have quit at number 10, but. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll let on the secret. I, I, I'm not confident. I think it's more, not so much confidence as just the, the ability to have, to have humor and be self-effacing and not, and you know what, you know, it's okay to make a mistake. Um, so I think, I think it's more about uh, not so much the confident that I know my idea is right, but that it's you know, you got to sort of laugh at yourself and, and just kind of, kind of move on to the next idea. 
Now, does that attitude translate to anything else that you do outside of work? Oh, but it's, it translates to everything I do. It's my approach to cooking, you know, kitchen surprise, just whatever's in, just try to pull stuff together. And sometimes it's good, sometimes not, or whether we're skiing and, oh, that looks good over there. Let's just go for it. You know, you, in life, you, you know, sometimes you just have to sort of, you know, just sort of see what happens and, and just be ready, ready to go, go a different path if need be. All right. Cause the common stereotype of people that are highly analytical or very versed in STEM is that they're more like calculated in approach in their approach. It sounds like, you know, you've already talked about running towards chasms. You're talking about cooking, whatever it is you see, you're talking about skiing. What other interests do you have? Well, uh, you know, I, one of my other interests is uh, Japanese ornamental carp or also known as koi or nishikigoi. And I sort of got into the Japanese gardening thing. And I have, I have some, uh, some koi in my, my pond that actually I purchased uh, from the, from the koi farms in Japan and had, had shipped over here. Now those, those fish get quite large. How big are your biggest koi right now? Uh, my biggest koi right now are about uh, on the order of maybe about uh, three feet, about two and a half feet long. That's pretty substantial. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you're yep. doing a good get, job raising these fish. They get pretty big. Yep. <laughs> well, Rick, I feel like going, your, going to visit you would be pretty fun. You got the Zen Japanese garden. You got the beautiful big koi fish swimming. We might go skiing and you might cook up something pretty fierce. Good or bad, it, it'll be... <laughs> Could be, you know, another, another hobby I, I was going to mention um, is I used to, not anymore, but I used to do a lot of, a lot of singing in sort of amateur choirs. I sang in the Boston symphony and I sang in the Seattle symphony. And then most recently the, the, in the San Francisco symphony symphony as well. Okay. So you're legit then like your voice must be pretty magical. I don't know about magical, but at least, uh, you know, at least tenors, uh, tenors tend to be in pretty, pretty high demand. So my voice is pretty, pretty high as you can probably uh, uh, detect there. And uh it makes it a little easier to get into those those choruses, but it's it's a it's a fantastic hobby to have. I don't I don't do it anymore. I don't have the time anymore for the schedules, or it can be quite grueling. But um, you know, at the time, it was uh, just an amazing experience, completely different from the rest of my scientific world. To just lose yourself, you know, in, in the midst of an amazing performance with the professional orchestras. Well, Rick, I can say with confidence, you are the first guest ever on IT Visionaries that is a symphony caliber singer, PhD. I already forgot what your PhD was, in, but it was in something serious. Chemical, chemical engineering. engineering. <laughs> PhD in chemical engineering, inventing new materials for batteries, cooking, skiing. I mean, you're a very, you're like a renaissance man. You do it all. The arts, the arts and the sciences. I try. I try. Again, a hundred times, just keep going at it. Get, try a hundred times. And one time it'll, it'll, you know, one time it'll be right. Well, Rick, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. You know, for our audience, you might not see group 14 on the name of your future battery pack, you know, your packaging of a battery. But, you know, I think this is something that all of us can relate to. All of us have been somewhere when we ran out of power. I think, you know, having 50% more power, that can be game changing for the world. Rick, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.